So what has surprised me is how unending oppression is and systems of oppression are as it relates to every generation having to critically commit themselves and critically think about how they're going to represent and honor God's justice and freedom as we've come to know in Jesus Christ. And it's a continuous, ongoing challenge. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Forrest Harris, president of American Baptist College in Nashville, Tennessee. As you hear in the conversation, American Baptist College has had a really unique legacy and history on a number of fronts, and we're going to be talking about those different aspects with Forrest. You may remember him. He was the last person who spoke in last week's regular episode, the Angela Project Prayer Service at the Baptist World Alliance meeting in the Bahamas. Well, a couple days before we held that service, I sat down with Forrest to talk about American Baptist College and his life and ministry. So here's my interview with Forrest Harris of American Baptist College. Forrest, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Now, you are the president of American Baptist College in Nashville, Tennessee. So for those who aren't familiar with the school, can you tell us about American Baptist? Glad to. Glad to be here sharing with you today. American Baptist College was founded in 1924 by National Baptist USA Incorporated and Southern Baptists. It was a partnership between a predominantly black Baptist denomination and white denomination Southern Baptists. And in that partnership, they sought to create an educational opportunity for rural clergy to be educated and serve their communities effectively. And they came together and founded at that time, the American Baptist Theological Seminary. And as a result of that partnership, which lasted for a number of years, more than 30 years, we were able to see that school uh, flourish from a fledging small seminary where actually rural clergy came and some of them completed their high school degrees and other persons came to be educated in mission work. And uh, it began to gather strength and, and, and popularity as a place for clergy to come to be, to be trained. And uh, it, was, it was a great partnership between black and white uh, Baptists, but little did either group know, National Baptists or Southern Baptists know, 
that that school would ultimately move to Memphis. It started, I moved to Nashville. It started out in Memphis and ultimately uh, moved to, to Nashville. And, and in his Nashville context, that school ended up becoming an incubator for the civil rights movement that was started through the student sit-in movement there in Nashville. And it became a, a, a place that attracted people to it that ended up being in uh, central people in Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights uh, movement. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you about that part of the history because it is such a rich part of the history. Several prominent civil rights leaders were students mm-hmm. there. Can you tell us about some of them? It would be names that I know a lot of our listeners will, will recognize. Yes. The one that's most mostly known and still very active in the political arena of America is John Lewis, who lives in Georgia, who is the representative from Georgia in the House of Representatives of the United States. And uh, John Lewis, as a student there, he was president of the Student Government Association. And uh, of course, his student life got interrupted because he was involved in in the movement. And uh, he ended up being the speaker that spoke before Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington in 1963. Also, uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian uh, was a prominent person in the civil rights movement who both was a student and taught at American Baptist College who became the foremost uh, intellectual on civil rights and activist on civil rights that was involved in the movement. The Reverend Dr. Julius R. Scruggs, who just now became emeritus pastor of First Missionary Baptist Church in Huntsville, uh, Alabama, was a student during that time and became president of the National Baptist Convention USA Incorporated, was involved in the, in the movement there in Nashville and a student that is not known that much because he ended up dying because of the injuries he received in one of the protests, William Barbie, who is remembered by Dr. Scruggs and others as one who, sh- who we hope to honor someday because he lost his life during the movement. But there were, there, were, there were many other students. Those are the most prominent ones. Bernard Lafayette, who was um, former president of American Baptist College. As a matter of fact, I followed him. And after he was uh, at the college as president, he went on to the University of Rhode Island to teach nonviolent conflict and resolution and uh, was a, a, a principal participant in the civil rights movement. So we are very proud of that, that, that legacy of leadership that came through our college. Our college is not a large college. It's a small school. But out of that school came two persons that received the Medal of Freedom uh, Award from President Obama, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And we kind of, we are proud of the fact that that school has produced these these kinds of leaders. Yeah, it is remarkable, especially for, like you said, such a small school. I wonder, why do you think the school had such an impact? What was it about, was it attracting a certain type of student, impacting the students in a way? What, What was part of that? Well, David Haberstan, who wrote the book, The Children, I think captured it better than any of the biographers and our historians about American Baptist College. It was was a small school, as we mentioned, but it had a commitment to training students to think critically about the social world around them, 
So the social gospel was a prominent part of their training. And there was this, what I would call a very high touch of students with what does the meaning of the gospel has for those whose back using Howard Thurman's word is up, up against the wall. And, and that got ingrained in the way in which the students were taught. And then you had the teaching in the academy matching the context in which that teaching took place in Nashville when the student sitting movement occurred. And they saw a congruence, a natural, a natural congruence between what they were learning at ABC and the call to commit themselves to social change in the community. And I think that that mixture made for a distinct way in which ABC became the kind of school that it is today. Now, as you mentioned, the school started as a partnership right. between National Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist Convention. And the partnership, though, also eventually died. Correct. And I wonder if you could help us understand a little bit what happened. Yeah, well, the relationship as it was imagined in its origin was to provide an opportunity for rural clergy, African-American clergy, to, to be trained. But at the same time, there was Southern Baptist Convention in Louisville, where at the time, segregation did not permit or allow for black clergy to go. I don't know if there were one or two there or not at the time, but it was established that segregation kept Southern Baptist Seminary from having black clergy attend. So in creating a school for black rural clergy in that segregated culture made political sense, but it certainly didn't serve the overall issue of what justice and equality meant. So Southern Baptists did not have an idea that they were starting a partnership that would ultimately move it into the center of what Dr. King's movement would mean for the nation. And of course, it was not just about, at the time it was segregation, but segregation ended up being equal rights. Uh, segregation ended up being a prophetic movement to end economic apartheid in America. Segregation ended up pushing Dr. King and others to deal with other issues as it relates to voter registration and voter rights and the ballot that would give African-Americans the power to choose their own leaders and direct the future of their communities. So what ended up occurring is ABC, American Baptist College, and how Southern Baptist saw itself aligning with that prophetic witness began to give it give the college definition that Southern Baptist did not quite have. And then American Baptist College and the support that Southern Baptist was giving it, it kept the school open. Southern Baptist had a fiscal commitment to the school and did a good job in owning up to and accountable to its stewardship to the school. But when it came to making some decisions as it relates to these other matters and American Baptist College and its leadership, and the National Baptist Convention making a commitment to its physical accountability to the school. That's where problem occurred and Southern Baptist pulled out and, and the school now is totally under the leadership of American Baptist College and our affiliation with the National Baptist Convention. Yeah, you know, I think there's something 
remarkable in that story. And you kind of, you kind of, you hinted at it. You know, a lot of Southern Baptist leaders and pastors were leading the hesitancy and even outright opposition to mm-hmm. King's movement and right. the others that were involved in civil rights. And yet at the same time, they were, they helped create and were funding this, this, this catalyst for the movement. Yeah. And, and there's something powerful, a reminder of what can happen if we let the spirit and let the word and start teaching it, it might move in a way that we didn't necessarily think we we saw because you can't control it. Yeah, well, I, I think sometimes I've said in other interviews that we don't realize how subversive God is. <laughs> or to put it another way, that the movement of God's presence and power in the history of human beings have worked in ways that we have not understood. And under that kind of subversiveness and or that kind of way in which God's hidden power and truth for the future is not known, we get, we get ourselves put in that position and, and God uses even our opposition, uses even our resistance in a way to move history along to a better expression of, of itself toward toward our humanity. So, yeah, I think that you, you, you're right that, that they just were not aware that they were being used in that way. And um, somewhat, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't know because they may not have. They may not have kept funding yeah, as long. <laughs> yeah. and, and then on the other side, National Baptist Convention, in that paternalistic relationship, you know, had a stewardship accountability to the school and was not always able to meet that stewardship requirement and uh, still struggles and is still challenged to meet that stewardship accountability to, to cause for the school not to be under such strain physically. You know, I find it interesting that the year that the SBC relationship with American Baptist College, which was a few years before you started, just Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little about your story in a moment, mm-hmm. was in 1995, right. which was the same year that they also issued their apology for mm-hmm. their, their slave-owning past and the right. founding of the SBC to mm-hmm. support slavery. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting that they happened at the same time. While the one time they were wanting to acknowledge some parts of their history, they were also ending support for one of the few things they had done mm-hmm. uh, that had, I don't know, does it, what does that say about how we're dealing? Because we're having these conversations today. We're having conversations with Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. the issues of you know reparations and slave, right. you know slave owning past. So what does it say that on, perhaps on one hand, sometimes white Baptist churches want to, to to lament and say that was wrong, and now we're ready to say, all right, we admit that was wrong, we want to move forward, but at the same time, not partnering. Well, let me just say it's difficult to partner with justice when you don't understand and acclaim the injustices in a way that require you to commit to a new way of existing in that partnership. Meaning the idea of reparations has had systemic and structural economic oppressions throughout the history of it and and, and the residue of of, of slavery, racism, and segregation, the social trauma, the, the deficits, the gaps in wealth, and all the things that impact marginalizing the life of African-American people or poor people or brown people, we're still struggling against, and we're still trying to find corrective ways 
to, to bring alternatives. So when you apologize for slavery, that's a recognition that it was an injustice that was wrong. But the apologizing ought to go into a deep repentance and another way of existing, which require you to be investing yourself, your resources, and your communities into the reign of God, the kingdom of God, as it relates to correcting some of the things that occurred. So bringing that to bear on how you think about the apology and bringing that to bear on how you can help deal with some of the deficits and how it created such horrendous liabilities for the lives of people requires another kind of commitment. That's the reason why I say it's difficult to partner with justice. You could speak about an apology. You can speak about it was wrong. You can even speak about reconciling black and white congregations and having better race relations, but you still have systemic and structural histories that have to be dealt with in order to create another alternative in future for the next generation as it relates to poverty and health care, impact that it's had on families, the criminal justice system, and all of the things that we are struggling against now as it relates to those uh, those communities. Because as you noted, you know, your school as well as National Baptist Convention would say struggles financially. Right. And that's that's not unusual in our society mm-hmm. that the black institutions are going to be struggling more than white institutions. And a lot of that is still tied to that systemic wealth gap right. that's related to slavery and segregation and right. Jim Crow and so forth. Well, the whole wealth generation of Western capitalism and Western philanthropy and endowments, investments, that has built the wealth and, and created the gap for the minority community, and I mean minority community, the black community, to have less of wealth generation and foundational wealth to pass on to the next generation and to, cons- and to sustain institutions of education and health and family and communities over against the majority institutions having that wealth advantage. And it came as a result of the labor of slaves. It came as a result of uh, segregated economies. It came as a the result of redlining. It came as a result of a GI Bill giving those who were returning from the war, you know, opportunities, but not for African-Americans who came and fought in that same war and came back but a whole lot of other things. So those kinds of things, while we're talking about reparation as an emotional issue, reparations or issues as it relates to this wealth gap and our discriminatory policies still affect a whole lot of people in this nation. So as you noted, when the school was started, it was started at the time when the educational system, most of society was segregated. Mm-hmm. And... That's not true at our educational institutions today. So I want to give you an opportunity to, to answer this because this is a question that I'm sure it's not probably the first time you've heard it. But some might wonder, why do we need a historically black college or university? Because you all are in that designation. Right. right. So why do we still need an institution like that, like American Baptist College and the other hundred? So why, why do we still need those institutions? Let me, let, me, let me heighten the narrative of your question. Why does America need historically black colleges and universities? Why does the nation need those schools to continue the mission and the work that they do? 
And the reason why I raise that is somehow the question, and I get this question often, is, is provisionally targeted toward black persons or black people needing the college. And while overlapping into that need, what historically black colleges and universities have done for this nation is they have trained African-American persons to be full citizens and participants in the country's flourishing and in various fields that have made a difference in this country without them would not be who it is. They're a good marshal. You think about the many folk who graduated from HBCUs, physicians who, who graduated from HBCUs, and Meharry Medical College in Nashville, where I'm from, graduating most of the African-American doctors in this country. Uh, you think about those who in the NAACP who were from historically black college and argued the legal cases for ending segregation and so forth. So HBCUs have made a profound contribution to America, to the nation, and it could not be what it is without them. To talk about or argue, for the, argue about or debate about their continuing need for existence is the counterproductive argument of saying, well, we don't need them anymore because they now can go to the University of Tennessee and other schools. But those schools have not and will never be able to fulfill the mission that these schools continue to feel as it relates to this population that continues to come to them. So integration did not solve all the problems that continue to need to be challenged and are met through education. And so HBCUs, Historic Black Colleges and Universities, still have a great mission of training students, black and white, in a way of the social humanitarian need of those students having a commitment to justice, having a commitment to fair, equitable economy for all, a political vision of the nation that brings about the equality and all the things that that means for uh, a generational flourishing. And they are an asset to the nation. And if they ever go out of existence, we will feel the impact because the gap that they now are standing in, the larger universities will never, never meet in my estimation. You've been president for- About 20 years. Two decades, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's let's get a little bit of your story. So where did you come from? How did you end up in this role? Well, I graduated from Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1971 and uh, majored in sociology and psychology. And I did not have any sense of the, the church in the way I ended up becoming related to it. But born, raised in the black church culture, it marked me. And when I got out of college and started my first job with the government as a facility compliance officer for the Energy Research Administration, came, came known as the Atomic Energy Commission as a compliance, making sure that government-owned contractor-operated facilities were applying the equal opportunity laws to make sure that they weren't discriminating. So I was good, I thought, and um, my family got started and owned a little home, bought up my first home. And here comes the black church and its heritage, you know, urgently moving me beyond some dissatisfaction with what I was doing deeply. 
and what we and what others you've probably heard felt called. And I couldn't couldn't shake it, couldn't get rid of it. And I felt called to the ministry, called to to preach and resign that job and went to American Baptist College. I already had an undergraduate degree from Knoxville College, but I heard so much about this school. And Dr. Julia Scruggs and others I've heard preach, and I was so impressed with their preaching and their social gospel, hermeneutic, and the way they interpreted the gospel as it relates to salvation, as a, as, a, as, a, as a transformation for your own life, but what that transformation meant for your work in the world. And I was just impressed. So I went there to kind of get retooled, and not knowing that one day I would end up becoming president. After I finished American Baptist College those two years retooling, I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School to get the master's and doctorate degree. I was thinking I was gonna go back to this little town that I started my work in, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where I was pastoring a little church, Oak Valley Baptist Church, a nice church. And one of the professors at Vanderbilt called me and said, we are starting an institute honoring Kelly Miller Smith Sr., who was on the faculty at Vanderbilt as Dean of Black Church Relations and one of King's principal leaders in Nashville. I was just overwhelmed. I was flabbergasted that I was going to, I was being asked to become the coordinator of this new institute. So I agreed, resigned the pastorate in Oak Ridge at Oak Valley became the first coordinator of the Kevin Newsmith Institute on Black Church Studies at Vanderbilt, and eventually became, became full professor there in the practice of ministry. And I'm still at Vanderbilt, by the way. Been there now 30 years and 20 years at, at American Baptist College. And so combination of being at Vanderbilt Divinity School and someone asking me later on, Dr. Scruggs, and Walter Malone, and others, we need you to consider to become president of American Baptist College. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm coordinator, I'm director of the Kellen Smith Institute at the Vanderbilt University Divinity School. And we at that time had gotten a $1.8 million endowment for that program. But it was in Vanderbilt Divinity School. Here it is, a university who actually, because of James Lawson, who were teaching nonviolence, was a student at Vanderbilt at the time. But because of his teaching nonviolence to the students to protest in Nashville, Vanderbilt expelled him. And, and at this point now, history says it's a, such a history that we want to have a divinity school named, I mean, an institute named after Keller Mills Smith. And I'm the first director. But back in the day, you expel the very person, James Lawson, who was teaching nonviolent protest. Racism has a complexity to it. And the resources it has to do what it does over against an American Baptist College, who doesn't have the resources to endow programs as Vanderbilt does, makes this kind of you know, difficult for me to sometimes navigate two worlds, one world with power, resources, and another world with less resources 
to do some of the things that Vanderbilt does. But my, my point is, I ended up being president of American Baptist College. And at the time, the dean at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Joe Huff, felt it was a great thing for me to be president of ABC and still be on the faculty because the two were mutually supportive of what we could do to help train pastors for the churches. And matter of fact, a number of ABC graduates are graduates also of Vanderbilt Divinity School. And so that's how I ended up at American Baptist College. And um, at the time, it was near, it, it was near closure. It, 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 it was struggling to recapture support, student enrollment declining, facilities had been uh, disregarded in terms of deferred maintenance. And uh, I initially said, no, I can't. You want me to leave Vanderbilt to come take this? And when Joe Huff said, no, we need you to go and so forth, when you talk about the spirit of God and the purposes of God supporting and giving you some confidence that that's what you should do, that's what happened to me. And 20 years later, the school is in a strong position to uh, move to the next level of, of higher education. Well, I guess my last question for you then would be, as you reflect on these 20 years of, of leadership and you've been involved in Baptist life and church life and many other roles during that time, mm. what has surprised you the most? That's a very good question, Brian. If it's, if it's a surprise, it's a surprise that I did not recognize that that was always, it was always something there that I wondered about. I always wondered about why is it that we repeat some of the same oppressions that impacted the way we struggled against those oppressions. And we consistently do it, although they show up in different garments, they show up in different uniforms, they show up in different disguises. So what has surprised me is how unending oppression is and systems of oppression are as it relates to every generation having to critically commit themselves and critically think about how they're going to represent and honor God's justice and freedom as we come to know in Jesus Christ. And it's a continuous, ongoing challenge. That's theologically one of the not so much surprises, but I've learned that this battle is never over. And as education is a primary way in which we help people unlearn systems that have shaped their way of looking at the world and help them reconstruct a vision of God, a theological vision of what the world might become is the ongoing challenge of, of theological education become more open and more accessible to other ways in which we might discover truth about God that may not lodge and exhaust itself in what we call Christianity, that there are truths about cultures and religions that we have to find a way to be in dialogue with that nurture and support and affirm what we already have to come to discover in our Christian faith. That's, that's one of the theological things that I've said.
Then, uh, I guess I've been really surprised that sometimes the oppression that people have been under and the powers that have shaped them, not only do they sometimes do we mimic them, it's hard for us to support alternatives because we have been given some kind of sense that black institutions are inferior to white institutions. The monies that are needed to run HBCUs and the commitment that we need people to have that is not as aggressive as it might be for our support of other things. So I've, I've been surprised about how hard it is for us to get our constituent base to support our schools. And uh, hoping that doesn't continue to surprise me, but support of those institutions that make a difference for our liberation and our freedom and not just for black people, but the liberation and freedom that communities and nations and, and need. We need to support those causes. And I've been surprised how slow people are in supporting those causes. Then I've been surprised of the philanthropy of folk who get it. They are, we have, without support of some of the foundations that we've had a relationship with over the years, we would not be open as a school. So we've had great relationship with grantors and, and, and philanthropists, white and black. And I've been surprised that a lot of people get it. And a lot of people are generous toward the transformative education that we do there at American Baptist College. And of course, you get surprised and be disappointed by people who take on intentionally how to make it difficult for the school to be open. And uh, you have to keep working with and, and building a constituent base that understands the need of the school even against that kind of opposition and struggle. That might be... I know it keeps you busy. Yeah, it keeps you busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you giving us your time on the program, but I also appreciate all that you have been doing at American Baptist College and elsewhere here at the Baptist World Alliance meetings. So I'm just, I'm really excited to have you on the program and, and to share more about you and your school. Yeah. Well, one of the things that have, I've been a part of the Baptist World Alliance for now more than 20 years. I had started coming to it prior to becoming president of the college. And it has been one of those contacts, interacting and having dialogue with people across the world around the Christian faith and how Baptists express that faith. And at first I was very leery about BWA, the conservative base that was here at the time, Southern Baptist was here at the time. And because of the plural demand for them to open up to accept other experiences of the faith through other cultures, and then that they could not interpret that for everybody. They pulled out. I remember the year, it was the really first year, uh, first two years, and they pulled out. They have not been a part of BWA in a, in a strong way. And that was that's what made me stay. It's because I thought that was the appropriate tension. You know, you have to have a thesis and an antithesis to get to another way of seeing yourself. And that helped me see that this group, the Baptist World Alliance, had the, the ingredients of, of dialogue and commitment and passion for Jesus Christ and the faith that it calls us to, that I want to learn more and be a part of. And that's the reason why I'm still, still coming.
I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Thanks for being on the program. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about American Baptist College at abcnash.edu. That's A-B-C-N-A-S-H for Nashville. As always, you can find us at Word and Way at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you have any comments or feedback, please send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. Anything you give there will support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.